Father, it's good to be still. It's good just to take a few seconds of quiet. It's good to sort of uh, not grab a text or an email or it's just good to be quiet and to be still. Uh, our pace of life is um, is somewhat remarkable. And with all of this technology that is in so many cases designed to save us time, it just seems to eat up our time. So it's good to be still. It's good to be quiet. It's good to Take a breath. We got up this morning and got in the starting blocks and that gun went off. <clears throat> and we started running. Going about our responsibilities and <clears throat> meetings and calls and tasks and reports and lunches and all these things that make up our lives. We are so thankful that um, you are the creator, that you've given us life, that you give us uh, responsibilities in life. We all have uh, tasks and people that we care for, that we love, that, we're, that are under our watch care. We're husbands, we're fathers, we're grandfathers. We're employees, we're employers. But everybody, all of us, we have those who are under us. We want to serve them well. It's easy, Lord, to uh, one day to turn into another, to turn into another, and it's a blitz and it's a blur. <clears throat> and it's just good to be still and to think and to ponder who you are and what you were doing. We are living in uh, remarkable times, somewhat astonishing times. We're witnessing things right now, quite frankly, we never thought we'd see. And we're, I, I, I think we're kind of stunned. And it, it, we didn't see it coming. But even with things that we see in terms of our nation and things, instead of being stalled, moving ahead, and in thing, in, instead of things being, um, laws being ignored, we're, we're, we're seeing some things happen that encourage us. We're thankful for these things. But we also are mindful that we're still living in evil days. And we're still in spiritual battle. And the days are evil. And we're asking you 
as we go about our busy lives, that you would enable us to walk with wisdom in the issues that are before us, that we would walk carefully, <clears throat> that we would depart from the foolishness of the world and embrace your truth. You said, I will teach you and instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You've promised to teach us, to guide us, to lead us, to show us how to walk. You just don't want us to be stubborn when you show us what you want us to do. You want us to respond. You want us to obey. We're all coming from different places tonight, facing different issues, different pressures. But what we all have in common is that we need your wisdom. As for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or due to strength, 80 years. But soon it is gone and we fly away. It's going fast. So, as Moses said, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. As we sit here tonight and open our Bibles, put your wisdom in our hearts and minds. If we're stuck on something, Show us what you want us to do next. Just make it clear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our study tonight. We're calling landmines our, uh, our, our base text, our home text, our home ground is Ephesians 5, and I want to go back there tonight, and we just keep inching our way through Ephesians 5, just verse by verse, section by section. In Ephesians 5, verse 15, Apostle Paul says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, why should we be careful? Well, making the most of, our, of your time because the days are evil, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, this is a call to walk carefully, to walk uh, circumspectly, to walk with your eyes open, to be alert, to have your senses honed in, to be paying attention um, to your heart, to your walk with the Lord. Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it flows the wellsprings of life. Uh, we're following the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. That's why we're here. Everybody's got a shepherd. We're following him. And we've been talking about the fact that when um, men follow the Lord, the enemy suddenly becomes interested in those men. And he doesn't want them to have a spiritual influence. He doesn't want them to lead uh, spiritually. Uh, it's so easy to be passive in terms of spiritual leadership. But he wants us to initiate. He wants us to do the next right thing. He wants us to influence. He wants to live out our faith. When a guy does that, when you have a want to to do that, uh, the, the enemy uh, is going to come after you and try to neutralize you. He's going to try and trip you up. First Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, 
So there are ambushes for those who want to follow Christ. Uh, this is why we've got to watch the landmines. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise. The term unwise here means moral stupidity. Be careful how you walk. Not in moral stupidity, but as wise men. Tonight, I want to address um, a landmine that's in the text. And this would be, we're just going to address one landmine tonight, and this would be the landmine of not listening to God's clear instructions on marriage and the family. Say it again. This landmine is the landmine of not listening to God's clear instructions on marriage and the family. In verse 16, he makes the point that we are to make the most of our time, we're to be careful with our time, because the days are evil. And the days are evil. Um, he then, after making that statement, goes on and talks about the importance of understanding what the will of the Lord is. Oftentimes we think, that's in a specific uh, decision. Um, you know, do I take this job? Do I interview for this job? Do we take this move? Do we not take this move? And that would apply to it. But when he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, it's not just in the, in the specifics of life. It's in the general principles of life. Um, we, we, got, we, we get God's will in Scripture. And this is why he continues on and says, so... Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. When you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by wine. When you're drunk with wine, you can't walk carefully. You, in fact, you, you're lucky if you can walk. Uh, you, you know, you see a guy pulled over and they got him walking that line and he can't walk carefully because he's controlled by this substance. Don't get drunk with wine. <clears throat> That's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We've said this the last couple of weeks when it says... Be filled with the Spirit, the idea is control. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. So when we're walking wisely, we're being controlled by the Spirit of God. Uh, a parallel passage to what's here, uh, and again, I'm kind of reviewing a little bit, is Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I can't emphasize this enough, so I'm going to repeat myself. If you take two Bibles, open them up, Put one here, open it to Ephesians 5.18, get another Bible, open it up to Colossians 3.16, and then put your finger on 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled, be controlled with the Spirit, and then you put your finger on uh, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly go within you, and then you look at the results of being filled with the Spirit, of being controlled by the Spirit. You look at the results of being, uh, letting the Word of Christ richly go within you. And what's interesting as you go down each verse, it's exactly the same. They're parallel. So, don't be drunk with wine. Uh, one of the results of being filled with the Spirit is you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song. That's also one of the results of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Right down the line. Always giving thanks, being subject to one another in fear of Christ, it's parallel. Then it talks to wives in both cases. Uh, then it talks to husbands. Um, 
then it talks to children, then it talks to fathers. So we conclude that being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, is the same thing as letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. The Spirit and the Word work together. He controls me through the Word of God. Okay. It's the Word of God that enables me to walk wisely. Now, we're going to talk tonight about marriage. Beginning with verse uh, 21, he introduces um, the idea. Actually, it's, it's 22, but he really brings it up in 21, where he says, and be subject to one another uh, in the fear of Christ. And then he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then he goes right down and starts working his way through basic principles on marriage, which we're going to do in a few minutes. What we want to do tonight, first of all, is we're going to approach this um, I, I want to make some statements about marriage. Um, the first thing I want to address, because we're going to look at marriage tonight, it, it, I, I'm going to go ahead and give you an outline. The first, the first principle I want to address uh, are the differing views on marriage in our day. The differing views on marriage. And we'll look at... Uh, um, couple of them, actually three of them. Um, the, the third one we'll look at is the biblical view, but I want to give you two other views. And, and then what we're going to do is that we're going to look at some basic principles about the biblical view of marriage and show how it is superior to any other view of marriage that's out there. So to try and make this a little more clear, to begin, my first point is the differing views of marriage. And the first view is the physical view, and the second view is the evolutionary view. And then, I'm going to make this Roman numeral two. We're going to look at the biblical view, and I'll give you some shots. How's that? What are you going to say, no? <laughs> I mean, we're all in this together, right? So let's... Uh, Let's talk about marriage. We're living in interesting times. We're living in incredible times. Um, he says in verse 16 that the days are evil. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, some days are more evil than others. We're living in astonishing days of rebellion to Almighty God. Um, There have always been different views of marriage and what marriage is and what marriage isn't. But the first view I want us to look at is the physical view. And the physical view of marriage is simply that marriage is just the legalization of sexual urges. Um, that's all it is. It, it, um, it's nothing more, it's nothing less. I... Um, I came across a fascinating uh, book review by Owen Strachan, and he is reviewing a book. He, he is a uh, seminary professor and works with a lot of college ministries. He is he's reviewing a book called American Hookup. And <clears throat> this is a book that basically talks about 
the culture on American universities, the sexual culture, uh, the sexual standards, uh, not only in universities, but in, among singles. Um, and it's somewhat astonishing. Um, because, you see, we're talking about the physical view of marriage, but what happens is people used to get married just to legalize they had this physical attraction, and so they get married. But you see, as we continue further and further from God and from God's truth, this whole concept of hooking up, marriage isn't even in the equation. They don't care about marriage. Marriage is completely out. Marriage is old school. So this hooking up, what is this hooking up? Let me tell you what it is. It's, <clears throat> it's sexual anarchy. It is sexual lawlessness. Read you a couple um, things from uh, Owen Strakehand. And remember now, this is on university campuses all over the United States. There's all kinds of nonsense on university campuses. Have you noticed this? And I'm sure you've been reading about the gender, the masculine safe zones, and, and all of this. Um, The, the thing about this hooking up, it is without any moral order or moral protection. In, in essence, what hooking up is, is free sex without any commitment or responsibility. Now allow me to read from what uh, Strachan has written. If you follow major trends in American life, you've heard of, hookup, of, of the hookup culture. A brand new book, American uh, Hookup, by sociologist Lisa Wade, shows that boundary-free sexuality is now the dominant force in shaping campus sexual culture. Wade's book, driven by reports from students themselves, now watch this, shows that many are bewildered and broken by modern sexual codes. Wade believes the solution to the reality is to dive further into the hookup culture. So let me get this straight. So you're broken by this? You've been devastated? You've been hurt? You're bewildered? And the solution, and I went online to Amazon and read some of the description of the book, her solution <clears throat> is so enlightened. It, it, it's, it, it, it is not to go back to morality. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't have that. But if you're broken, if you're bewildered, you haven't gone in deep enough yet. Professing to be wise, they became as fools. Uh, she argues, we need to say yes to the opportunity for casual sexual encounters and to a way of being sexual that is forward-thinking and feels good. That sounds to me like a pretty good deal for the guys. She goes on and says, the ultimate goal in hookup culture isn't just to hook up, it's to hook up with a hot person. Now, 
How does that make girls feel? Show me the protection here for young women. I, I, I thought these people on these university campuses were, were all about women's rights and all about protecting women and all about, but how, how in the world does that not put pressure? Uh, little girls feel pressure that they're not pretty enough. Uh, that they don't, uh, that they don't have the looks, that their body type is not the in body type. And they just go through all kinds of suffering and struggle and self-deprecation. All this is is more pressure. Um, here, here's something else I need to touch on this. This, this, again, now, this, is, this has always been around, this physical view of marriage. But now, they've just thrown marriage completely out. Uh, students are being trained by a secularizing culture to use one another in casual encounters. They're being trained to use. And may I say, to use and discard um, one more thing on this. It's kind of astonishing. Just about the worst thing you can do in the process of a hookup is to catch feelings. What does that mean? Uh, well, it means that all you want to do is hook up sexually. That's it. But what you don't want to do is to bring feelings, any kind of feelings, into this physical encounter. That's a big no-no. I mean, when I first read this, I'm thinking, I mean, is this The Onion? Is this um, Mad Magazine? Uh, I think more of you guys are more in touch with Mad Magazine from the 50s and 60s. Is this a parody? Is this a joke? Uh, no, because it goes on and say, Students simply aim to hook up with someone that they don't even particularly like. You just have sex. And then you break it off. Sexual encounters are merely uh, transactional. This, this is ludicrous. This is insane. Uh, so, you guys that have daughters at home, you got to be connected to your girls as best you can. I found it easier to connect to my sons than I did to my daughter. I have guys ask me, I see a lot of verses on how to, um, on how a father ought to raise sons. I, I really don't see verses on how a father ought to raise daughters. And my, my response is, I agree. So, Here's a tip, and here's what I tried to do. I took the verses in Scripture that told me how to relate to my wife and how to treat my wife, and I applied those verses to my daughter. Because, reason here with me, your daughter, uh, as she grows up, there's going to be guys that want to come into her life and uh, want to take her out and, you know, all this, and she's going to go off to college probably, you know, unless she goes to some kind of Christian college that really believes the Bible, she's going to walk into this culture. How is she going to handle this? If you've got daughters at home, it's your job to prepare them. It's your job to even talk to them, depending on their age. 
and get ahead of this and prepare them along with your wife, you can't let this go. You just can't do it. Uh, uh, If you do that, you're a leader. If you don't do it, you're passive. And you say, they may ask me questions I don't have the answers to. Well, you can count on that. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get in and lead and talk. And, you know, if they ask you a question and you don't know, you might just say, well, you know, sweetheart, I'm not quite sure about that. I need to explore that a little bit. Can I do that and get back to you? That's just good leadership. By the way, if you treat her as valuable, she won't act cheap. You're the most important man in her life. So you take the verses, First uh, Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise live in your, with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Uh, not a put down on women. Women are physically weaker. You can be the same height and weight as your wife, but you have 40% more muscle mass because you're a male. Um, so you're physically stronger. Um, in the marriage relationship, and we'll get into this a bit later, uh, as the man is the head of the family, as Christ is head of the church, there's a position of, of weakness in terms of authority, and you need to be mindful of that. And so we don't treat our wives according to the principles of the world. We treat our wives according to the principles of Christ. So um, you husbands likewise live with your wife in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel. She goes through this cycle uh, monthly and we thank the Lord every month that we don't, but she does. It's the cycle of life. Um, and things change emotionally and hormone levels and all these things. Okay. So live with your wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, you have daughters? You, you dads likewise. You say, why are you doing that? Because more than likely, your daughter will grow up to be a wife, somebody's wife, and she's going to know, need to know what kind of guy to look for. And she just doesn't need, when she goes off to school, some guy who just wants to hook up. And you've got to protect her, and you've got to show her what godly men are like, and anybody else you run from, and you don't give them the time of day. You're not bound together with unbelievers. And you may not have a real active social life, but you don't need a real active social life. You need to be a woman of character, and you follow the Lord, and he's got his eye upon you, and he's got a plan for your life, and you just need one guy. But you need a godly guy. Yeah. So you, you fathers, likewise, live with your daughters in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a young lady. And grant her honor. You honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's how you fight off a hookup called culture. And I would also think twice before you, you, you write a check for a university and they got this going on. If there's a maturity and it can be handled and they're prepared, that's one thing. But why would you throw kids into that kind of culture without some kind of support? Without, I'm just saying. It's a new day, it's a new age, and it's evil. So let's go to the second kind of marriage. You guys still with me? This is the evolutionary view of marriage. 
the ever evolutionary view or the anthropological view. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to let Martin Lloyd-Jones explain this. He does it so well, his book, Christian Marriage, on page 14. He says this, This view, the evolutionary view or the anthropological view, regards marriage as a human arrangement and a human contrivance. Anthropology teaches us, they say, uh, teaches us this, they say. There was no doubt a time, they say, when human beings were more or less like animals. They were promiscuous and behaved as animals behave. But as man, man began to develop and to evolve, he began to realize that certain arrangements were necessary, that promiscuity led to confusion and to excess. But see, we haven't learned that yet, have we? No. That uh, promiscuity led to confusion and excess and to a lot of trouble. So after a long process of agonizing and of development and of experiment and of trial and error, human nature in its wisdom, that is civilization, came to the conclusion that it would be right and well and good that you should have monogamy, one man marrying one woman. It is a matter of social development. That is the teaching of anthropology. But the whole time it is something that man has discovered. As he passes acts of parliament to control traffic and parking and so on, so he has discovered a way of solving this problem of man and woman and their relationships to one another and to children. It is something entirely on the human plane. That is probably the common assumption which is made by the vast majority of people. I find, even among many Christians, it's a big view. But that's not what marriage is. Last summer, I read a book called Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom by Ryan T. Anderson. This guy's got some guts. He is taking on the marriage issue. Young guy, smart, taking it on, writing position papers in the courts, doing all this stuff. Impressive book. But uh, he uses the anthropological view. Uh, he says, it's important to understand what I'm not doing in this book. I am not making theological arguments. I might point out what various religions teach simply as a matter of fact, but the arguments I make will all be based on science, uh, on reason, philosophy, jurisprudence, political science, and social science. In other words, all my arguments are going to be the wisdom of men. And the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians 1. Nor will I be discussing the morality of same-sex sexual relationships. Well, why not? I won't be appealing to tradition or history, arguing that because something's been done in a certain way, it ought to remain that way. Okay, that's the, anthrop that's the evolutionary view. Um, let see if I can find this. I'll get another green tab. Maybe this is it. Ah, this is it. So listen to Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts explaining his opinion in the uh, recent uh, decision on same-sex marriage. This universal definition of marriage as the union of a man and woman is no historical coincidence. Marriage did not come about as a result of, of political movement, discovery, disease, war, religious doctrine. He's wrong. It did come about as a result of religious doctrine. Or any other moving force of world history, it arose in the nature of things to meet a vital need, ensuring that children are conceived by a mother and father, committed to raising them in the stable conditions of a lifetime relationship. That's the anthropological view. That's the evolutionary view. 
you see. Well, um, okay, enough on that. So let's take a look at the biblical view of marriage. The biblical view of marriage, uh, let me say this. If you hold to this view, you're not going to be popular. Just thought I'd share that with you up front. Now, now let's just take a step here and let's, let's ponder this for a minute. Um, what the heck has happened so fast that has changed everything? 20 years ago, now let's go back 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the biblical view of marriage was the norm. I mean, it was just the norm. Let me see if I can find this. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can find. Ah, here it is. Uh, this, this is Anderson. He says this. Someone who wants to explain what marriage is has the difficult task of explaining something that every one of our grandparents simply took for granted. that everyone two generations ago thought was common knowledge, that marriage is a permanent, exclusive union of husband and wife. Only when this is attacked does it need a formal, explicit defense. Explaining why marriage is the union of a man and a woman is like explaining why wheels are round. But it has to be done. Who the heck asked, well, why is a wheel round? Because it's a wheel. But when they're asking, because they're so far off from biblical reasoning, then you've got to come up with an explanation. Um, so things have changed. I, I'm going to put this under the evolutionary view of marriage before we jump to the biblical view, okay? I'm glad I saw this because I was going to miss it, and then later on the way home, I'd be really mad at myself. But fortunately, I saw it. So for right now, if you're taking notes, we're still under the evolutionary view of marriage. What's happened is that marriage has continued to evolve, and now all of a sudden, this uh, same-sex marriage has just taken over. Where did this come from? I mean, 50 years, it doesn't exist, 20 years, I mean, and it, I mean, all of a sudden, it's here. Okay. Uh, Anderson in his book talks about the consent-based consent view of marriage, which would be where we are today under the evolutionary view. Here's what he says. The consent-based view of marriage is primarily about an intense emotional union, a romantic caregiving union of consenting adults. Did you get that? It's primarily about an intense emotional union. I think that's called, historically, infatuation. Is it not? Mary Tyler Moore, I got a text on my way over here, she died today. If you're my age, you were in love with Mary Tyler Moore. You had, what is this? An intense, 
emotional union with Mary Tyler Moore. And Dick Van Dyke was so lucky. And then something happened to her and Dick, and, and then she moved to Minneapolis and did her own thing. But she was still really cute. And I still had a, a kind of, what is it? Oh yeah, an intense emotional union. It's called infatuation. It's not real, it's just intense. It's, river, it's intense and it's emotional. Okay. The consent-based view of marriage is primarily about an intense emotional union, a romantic caregiving union of consenting adults. It's what the philosopher John Corvino describes as the relationship that establishes your number one person. What sets marriage apart from other relationships is the priority of this relationship. It's your most important relationship, the most intense emotional romantic union. The caregiving relationship that takes priority over all others. Andrew Sullivan says that marriage has become primarily a way in which two adults affirm their emotional uh, commitment to one another. And as we will see in chapter 3, this vision of what marriage is does all the work for Justice Anthony Kennedy's majority opinion. Millennia of marriage was changed by an intense emotional union. Once again, professing to become wise, they became as fools. This new view collapses marriage into companionship in general. Rather than understanding marriage correctly as different in kind from other relationships, the consent-based view sees it only a difference of degree. Marriage has what all other relations have, but more of it. This, we argue, gets marriage wrong. If marriage is simply about consenting adult romance and caregiving, why should it be permanent? And he makes the point, emotions come and go. You know what the problem with, um, with intense emotional unions? Is they're emotional. And emotions, I mean, you can go to bed with one emotion and get up the next morning and your emotions completely changed. That's not how you build a marriage. That's not how you build a culture. That's not how you build a family. That's not how you build stability. That's not how you build a nation. That's nonsense. But it's where we are. As opposed to that, uh, Anderson talks about the comprehensive view of marriage. So this is one more in the evolutionary, but it's got a little more teeth to it. The comprehensive view, comprehensive view of marriage. Someone who wants to explain what marriage is has the difficult task of explaining something that every one of our grandparents simply took for granted. Just read that. You know, explaining why the wheel is round. Um, explaining why marriage is the union of a man and a woman is like explaining why wheels are round, but it has to be done. This means going back to first principles. I agree with him there. Oh, and there's no better guide to first principles than Aristotle. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, there is. Because you see, Aristotle wasn't first. Wasn't even close to being first. So now we go to the biblical view of marriage. You guys still with me? Am I boring you? No, because we're in this up to our eyeballs. Um, 
So what is the biblical view of marriage? Uh, Let's go to Ephesians 5. Um, You know, know, actually, I think what I want to do is I want to go to Genesis first. Let's go to Genesis, then we're going to go to Ephesians. Uh, If you want first principles, you don't start with Aristotle. You start with creation. So uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Now, here's the deal. There's no book more attacked in the Bible than Genesis. There's no section of Genesis uh, more attacked than the earlier chapters. So where are we going? We're going to the earlier chapters. And, And here's the deal. And it's amazing and surprising how many quote-unquote evangelical Christians really don't believe in the authority of Genesis 1, 2, 3, uh, Christian colleges. Kind of amazing. Uh, There's a book out called The Four Views of Adam by four evangelical scholars. The Four Views of Adam. One is is that he was a historical figure. He really lived and existed on the face of the earth. Then you've got three other views that he wasn't. And these guys, quote-unquote, are evangelical. Really? Well, Jesus is the second Adam in Romans 5. And if there wasn't a first Adam who sinned, there would be no reason for the second Adam, Jesus, to come and die for that sin. If the Bible is wrong in Genesis 1, 2, 3, all the way up to the flood, why the heck would you read anything else in the Bible? If it's wrong right out of the blocks, why would you read it? Why would you waste your time with it? Okay. We have basic principles on marriage and family. Uh, Let me say this to you. There is an order of creation. When we see young people going off to college and they're broken and they're confused and they're hurt and they're wounded by this sexual anarchy, you know what anarchy is? It's lawlessness. Uh, sexually, uh, in their world, there is no order. God is not a conf- God of confusion. He's a God of order. You've got to have order. You have to have order. There is a creation order in Genesis. There is a creation order that is for all people in all times, in all cultures. Um, and one of them is marriage. Another one is to have children, be fruitful and multiply. Another one is to work. Um, There are several of them, but I'll just touch on those right now. So let's get some basic principles from Genesis on the order of creation. So here is the first principle I want to give to you. The man was created first. Uh, If you look at Genesis 2, it says, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord put him in a garden, It describes the garden. Uh, Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden, cultivate it, and keep it. So his job was to cultivate, work the garden. He had work, he had a task to do, uh, and he was accountable to God for how he did it. Uh, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat, and the day that you eat from it you will surely die. 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So the man was created first. Uh, 
What that means is, is, is that the man, he was going to be given a wife, he was going to be given children. The man was created first. There's a concept called primogenitor. Historically, it, it was the rights of the firstborn son. Um, this man, his responsibility, his responsibility was to have dominion over the earth. He had dominion over the animal kingdom, and he was going to be head of his family. He was going to be the leader of his family. Um, when he would have a family, his job was to protect, protect, to provide, and to take care. And in his family, uh, James Dobson, I think this is a great term, James Dobson would talk about the fact that in every family, you got to ask the question, in your family, who's the tribal chief? Because every family has a tribal chief. More and more families in America are matriarchal. Um, more and more, more and more Christian families are matriarchal. The buck stops with her. But God says the buck is to stop with him because he was made first. Now, once again, Dale Carnegie wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, if you hold this position, you're going to get some heat. But what's the landmine that we're looking at tonight? The landmine is uh, not listening to God's clear instruction on marriage and the family. You see? Because God has given an order of creation. Now, um, in 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And some Christian writers that I've read, they see that word helper, and they just, they, they just kind of bristle at it. Wait a minute, the woman's a helper? To what it says. But that same term is also used of God, who in, is our helper as we go through life. That's not a put down. But, but you see, as we'll get into Ephesians, he is the leader. She is to come along and help and complement. The idea is that she brings to him what he's lacking. She brings to him what he, is, what he needs. Both made in the image of God. See, the world says that men and women are equal, but when they say that, they mean men and women are the same. The Scripture says men and women are equal. We're both made in the image of God. That's in Genesis. No question about that. Christianity, wherever it goes, always enhances the status of women. But see, what Christianity says is that both male and female are made in the image of God, and they are both equal, but they are different. And God likes the difference. But our culture tends to feminize men and masculinize women. That's what's going on in our culture. You know it, and I know it. The wife is to be his gifted helper. Um, she is equal, but she is different. So, we started watching this series, and I'm not necessarily recommending it. It's not the greatest series I've ever seen. But at night, about 9 o'clock, I can't read anymore. I can't think anymore. Uh, I, don't watch any, I don't want to watch political commentary. I just want to kind of zone out and watch something that's clean, and there's a good guy and a bad guy, and there's closure, and the good guy wins. Kind of, you know, it's kind of how I am at about 9 o'clock at night. <clears throat> 
There's a show called Heartland. It's based out of Canada. It's about a family that lives in Alberta on a horse ranch. And, you know, it, it's, it's clean. They got horses. Uh, you know, they're roping cows. And it, yeah, pretty good series. Uh, it, modern day, you know. So you got the grandpa who raised the two daughters because her mom died. Their mom died, his daughter. And the father was a rodeo star. He got busted up and went off and just kind of lost his mind for about 10 years. And he shows back up trying to connect. And, you know, all, these, all this human drama. But the oldest daughter, she's like late 20s, 30s. Her name is, uh, they call her Lou for, I guess, Louise. And uh, she grew up in, you know, this, this ranch and wanted to get out, break out, went to New York, real smart, got a job, big money, all that jazz. And uh, finally comes home to help the family through a crisis. Winds up staying, um, but uh, she's really, you know, she's a piece of work. Uh, smart, gifted, um, and she met a guy and they got married and he runs a oil, big oil company. And so they got a lot of action going on. And it's interesting to watch their dynamic because he's based out of Vancouver, they live in Alberta, they got a little girl and uh, he wants to get the family together in Vancouver. And then it came out the other night that she really can't leave the family home. She can't leave. And she just bought this dude ranch. And she just bought that um, Maggie's, the diner downtown, and she's restoring it and doing all this stuff. Plus, she's got the baby to take care of, plus that. And then she's trying to help out with the, uh, uh, the buying of cattle and all this stuff. And, and, and every time she gets on the phone with her husband, and he's just saying, hey, let's talk about your moving here. Oh, and then they were saving money for a house, but she saw a house that she saw at an auction that her friend lived in. It was historic, and she called him on the phone, and she, uh, let's buy this house. Well, we're, hey, we're saving money for this house. I, and she says, I gotta hang up, and she bids and buys the house. And then every other time she talks to the guy, she's upset at him because she, he's not helping her. It's really interesting to watch. I just sit back and watch this. And I think, man, I'm glad I'm not married to her. <laughs> because they're like this. She's got her plan. She's got her purpose. She's got her agenda. And every time she's on the phone, she's basically upset because he's not helping her. But he wasn't made to be the helper to her. He was made to be the provider and the leader and the head. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter... And you know what? The guy's real gracious and he loves her and he listens to her and he makes her... You know, he's working with her. He's doing the best he can. Let's go to Ephesians uh, 5 again. It says in 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In all of our human relationships, you, you, human relationships are based on hierarchy. So if you're a vice president uh, at your company, you answer to the president. Uh, the offensive coordinator answers to the head coach. Uh, the private answers to the sergeant. It's just how life works. Among equals, we submit one to another. It's just how life works. It works that way in marriage. Now, you have this verse in 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, you, you may want to 
have this embroidered and give it to your wife for her birthday. And you're probably not going to do that. That's not a real popular verse. But what if that verse said, um, you offensive coordinators submit to your head coach? Would anybody have a problem with that? No. Why? Because when you're down, when you're down by uh, three points and you're driving and you got 30 seconds to go 60 yards and you're, and you're making your way down and you, you're, you, it's fourth down and you, you got to get into that end zone, uh, you decide you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to count on your field goal kicker because he's blown everything this whole season. So you've got to score. And then you, someone, someone's got to make a call. And there's all this headset going on. And the offensive coordinator, this guy's saying this, this guy's saying this. and all of a sudden, Somebody's got to make a call. Right? So the offensive coordinator has to submit to the head coach. See, this is just life. Now, but notice this. Notice this. Notice how Christian marriage is different because it says wives. And this isn't just for wives. It's for everybody. Because I have to submit. You have to submit. See, this is the thing. Husbands ought to be examples of submission to their wives. In situations where you need to submit to authority, do you do it? And, and note the phrase. Note the phrase. Wives, you subject to your own husband as to the Lord. The submission here is part of your Christian walk. Because God has ordained society and God has ordained human relationships, and there are hierarchies, it is his will that we submit to authority. And when you submit to authority, you're really submitting to the Lord who established authority. Okay. Is this making sense so far? So the other night, we watched Sully. Uh, I, I knew about it, thought, I'm not sure I want to watch a movie, because, I mean, I know the guy landed in the Hudson. It's amazing, but how, I mean, 90 minutes landing in the Hudson, it's pretty good. I liked it. What was interesting is um, they're taken off, and, uh, you know, he's got a co-captain. Pretty competent guy, very capable guy. In fact, the co-captain, he flew the sucker off the, I mean, he, he, he had the controls when they depart. And, but before <clears throat> they depart, they're going through their checklist, and, you know, they're working together. They're equals. They're both smart. They both know how to fly a plane. They're both trained. They're both leaders. They know what they're doing. And they're just working through their stuff together. And they take off, and, you know, everything's fine, and beautiful day. It's cold, and all of a sudden, and here come the birds. Birds take out the right engine, and, uh-oh, birds are taking out the left engine. And all of a sudden, they're in trouble. And Sully says, I got it. And the co-captain said, no, you don't. I've got it. Oh, yes, I do have it. Who do you think you are? I'm as None of that happened. Sully said, I got it. And the guy nodded. He said, turn on the whatever he turned on. He hit that. And then he's reading instruments. They're working. The other guy's looking up procedures. They're, they're a team. They're sorting this out because they're in a crisis. And it's just... And, he, and he's looking, and he's looking where he is, and he's looking at, he's trying, to, he's trying to factor in all this stuff, and all of a sudden, and the, oh, and the radio control guy, the tower guy is calling into him, hey, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a field in uh, Tenenek or Tenebet or wherever the heck it is. 
okay, Teterboro or whatever. It's New Jersey. Who cares? I mean, here's uh, so here, and then but there's uh, you know there's there's a Mozambique. I mean, if you I mean he's throwing all this information at this guy, and this guy solely he's re, he's just kind of filtering. He's taking everything in consideration. He goes, we're going in the water. We're going in the Hudson. And then what he does is he shuts out the guy in the control tower because he's got to think and he's got people he's got to save their lives. And he's factoring, he's factoring, he's factoring, he's factoring, and he sets that sucker down. Oh, and then when he set it down, they start, you know, getting out and getting on the wings. And then who's the last guy out? He is because he went back where the water was the deepest to make sure that nobody got caught because he's a leader and because he's a protector and because he's a provider. That's how it's supposed to work. And then they put him up in front of these bureaucrats and they critique him and the computer models say this and this and you should have gone back and all this. And then he looks at him very calmly and said, there's one thing you're missing and that's the human element. Yeah. And he said, how many times those, those pilots that just did that, how many times did they have that scenario before they, we just saw it? Uh, 17 times, 35 times. Really, I had one shot in 30 seconds. So they took 30 seconds off the scenario, and what happened? Crashed in both airports. To me, a Christian marriage, and, and see, here's something I gotta say, this is so important. A biblical marriage, have, have women been hurt? Have, have women been abused? Have women been taken advantage of by men in authority over them? Absolutely. Horrific, horrific stuff. Terrible stuff. But see, for Christian men, our model, this is not we're in authority for us and everybody's supposed to serve us. This, how we're supposed to do things, is modeled off of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for the church. This is how Christian marriage is done. It's just not you're the male and you're the head and all this, that. No. Let's read this stuff. Wives, be subject to your own husbands is to the Lord. See, ultimately, her, her uh, what am I trying to say? Her submission is to the Lord. You got a husband and wife, and you're working together. You're trying to get through life together. I, to me, I mean, years ago, I, I wrote a chapter on husband and wife teamwork in the marriage 747. I feel like Mary and I, we had all our kids at home, and we had, yeah, man, we could fill up a 747 with cousins and school friends and teams and coaches, and I mean, and we're flying this sucker. Uh, you need two very competent and capable people, just like Sully and his co-pilot. You see? It, <clears throat> but you see, Christian marriage has a whole different perspective. So watch this. And by the way, why is you subject your own hundred husbands is to the Lord? Uh, her first submission is to the Lord. So if a husband says to a wife, hey, I watched this raunchy video the other night, I want you to watch it with me. And she says, honey, I don't feel good about that. She doesn't have to submit to that. I'm going to tell you why. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And her first submission is to the Lord. She doesn't have to follow you in the sin. Hey, honey, we're a little short this month. I think I'm going to go down and rob a 7-Eleven. I need about 3000 bucks. 
Well, whatever you think best, sweetheart. <laughs> Jesus loves you, so do I. Are you kidding me? That's nonsense. Uh, it says at the end of Romans 14 that if you can't do something out of faith, to you it's sin. You cannot violate your conscience before the Lord. If, if a husband is uh, ask a wife, listen, I know we falsified this tax return and all that, but uh, just sign it, just sign it. it <clears throat> if you're on the battlefield and you've got some crazy guy in command over you who's stressed out and freaked out and maybe he's got pain and he's on meds and all this and you're in trouble and you're trying to get out of there and you've got some kids you've rescued and the guy says to you, just ban it the kids, let's get out of here, you better not ban it those kids. See, a lot of the Nazi guys, well, I was just doing my duty. No, that's not your duty to ban the kids. Right? So you don't do it, and you say no. And then you might get arrested. You might get shot, but you get shot. Because you don't violate your conscience. Submission has its limitations. Our submission <clears throat> as Christians is to the Lord. To the Lord. Now watch this. Watch, watch this. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, okay? He himself being the Savior of the body. Now watch this. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now, let's, again, let's qualify this. Uh, I remember reading the biography of the great preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse. Tremendous preacher, 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, every year, he, he would preach at the church on Sunday. He had a Buick Roadmaster. He'd load it up during the week, and he would travel up and down the East Coast, preaching, doing conferences, show up back on Sunday. Guy did this for years. He, he was incredible. Incredible preacher. And uh, he got older. He got older, and he started, some things started happening. He started uh, losing his ability to think and all of this. And every two years, he'd go in and buy a new Buick Roadmaster told his wife, you know what, it's time to go in and buy a new Buick Roadmaster. Well, he shouldn't even be driving. And with all, and, and I remember she handled it so well, so she called the general manager and they'd known him for years and explained what was going on. She went down with him. He looked at the new Buicks and they discussed it. And maybe we'll take, you know, maybe we need to think on this a little bit. And, you know, she handled that so well and respected him. What if he had said, honey, I'm just going to go ahead and buy this Roadmaster? No, that's not good. We don't need to do that. You guys get this. You get this. Her first submission is to the Lord and to honor him. Okay. Now watch this. Husbands, love your wives. This is the controlling factor that a lot of guys miss. Oh, I'm the head, I'm in charge, I'm the captain, I'm the, you know, okay. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, watch this, and gave himself up for her. That's how you love your wife. You're, you're, the way you're to love your wife is as Jesus loved the church. Jesus got beat up, Jesus got pummeled, Jesus got tortured for the church, Jesus got killed for the church. That's how you are supposed to love your wife. You take the blows. <clears throat> and sometimes the blows come from her. But you see how this is different than any other kind of marriage? 
This is not intense emotional attraction. Because sometimes there is no intense emotional attraction other than murder. <laughs> Someone asked Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, would you ever consider a divorce? She said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Murder? Maybe. <laughs> because sometimes we don't, we don't like each other. We just don't get along. What the heck am I doing? Why did I marry her? Good question, but you did. You gotta work it out. You gotta work your stuff out. You love her as Christ loved the church. Do you see how that changes everything? She's not there to serve you, you're there to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to serve, but no, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The man is to be governed by the love of Christ. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Uh, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. The whole idea of being a husband is to take care. There used to be a major in college called animal husbandry. It's the breeding and care of animals. There used to be a major called agricultural husbandry, which is the... Uh, the, um, the care and rotation of crops. The idea of being a husband is to take care. To take care. Where this is abused is when a man doesn't take care, but when a man takes advantage. That's not the love of Christ. When this is abused is when a man takes over. And he's dominant. And he's a tyrant in the home. But you see, that's not the love of Christ. Some guys take advantage, some guys take over. Some guys take off. Because there's no more intense emotional attraction. Well, she just doesn't look the same as she did when I married her. Well, look in the mirror, pal. <laughs> you don't look so hot yourself. <clears throat> we put miles on the tires, that's how it works. But you got kids, you got grandkids, they need to see a papa who stays the course. Some men just take. But not if the love of Christ controls me. I'm to take care. I'm to take care. So I need to walk as closely to him as I can. so that our home to those around can be a picture of how much Christ loves his church. In our home there's forgiveness, in our home there's reconciliation, in our home there's forgiveness. We forgive something and we don't bring it up again. Our home is safe, our home is secure. What woman 
would chafe against that. They would. He wants our homes to be happy homes. When all else fails, read the directions. So, Father, would you help us? We could, uh, <clears throat> we could all of us, <clears throat> every guy in this room, we could catalog all of our failures just this month. But, Lord, we're in process, and we're learning, and we're growing. Help us not to lose heart in doing good. Some marriages here are on a really tough stretch, just a real hard stretch of trail for some reason. Help both husband and wife. Remember Lloyd Jones saying, sometimes on these issues, the only way to work them out is to get on your knees together and say, Jesus, help us. We have different opinions. We have different viewpoints. How do we resolve this, Lord? We're just so, we're, we're, we're such opposites on this, and we can't work this out. What do we do? You get on your knees, and you advance forward in the marriage on your knees, both in submission to the Lord Jesus, and say, Lord Jesus, what is your will? What is your will? Help us apply these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.